Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative, where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. I would normally read a review at the end of the episode, but I decided for the last half of season two, I'll read reviews at the beginning. I wanted to share this review from The Real Smapple, who just so happens to be my partner, so I was especially encouraged by his words. He wrote, challenging, encouraging, hopeful. This podcast is not for those who wish to stay complacent and have their ears tickled. Narrative has been used by those in power to oppress the marginalized for ages. Which stories are told are important to the functioning of a society. As a white cishet male in the U.S. in 2020, I have almost every privilege afforded to me. I need to listen to and learn from those in marginalized positions, not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of transformation. Nikki provides a space for those with marginalized perspectives to share openly and honestly. This podcast challenges without shaming. It calls us to know better so we can do better, Maya Angelou. In the midst of the difficult topics, it offers hope because it sees the dignity that each of us have as humans. It calls us to live up to that dignity and potential for our sake and for our neighbor's sake. It's a must listen. Thank you, Stephen, for your kind words and for all your support that makes this podcast possible. Today's music is Raindrops by Bandy, featuring Sedante Ruland, Vocal, and Gwen T. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could rate and review to help others find the show. Engagement with the podcast helps with visibility so that more people can find these sacred conversations that I've been able to have with such phenomenal humans. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I would love to connect with you. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. Over the past couple of years, I've started writing again, and I'm currently working on a memoir. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. The argument, uh, uh, David J. Hester is the one who made this argument, that Jesus doesn't heal or like try to fix any eunuchs shows us that like Jesus knew about eunuchs, he says something positive about them, and he doesn't fix them, which means that means that they're not broken, right? So this sort of positive experience that Jesus has with people outside the gender binary um, can be a really important one when we think about helping people and like being in relationships with people outside the gender binary today. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by a guest that I've been so pumped to talk to. Austin Hartke is here. I wish I had an air horn that I could insert, and maybe I'll add one in. But um, Austin is the author of Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians, which we will be discussing today. And he's also the founder and director of Transmission Ministry Collective. So I first heard Austin on an episode of the podcast, The Bible for Normal People, and I've been so changed by his work. He is kind and spurs me on to love and good deeds. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation with you. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Well, to start us off, could you share a little about yourself and your background, sort of anything you think would be beneficial for the foundation of this conversation? Sure. So um, let me think. A couple things to know about me. Um, so I uh, grew up in like Christian non-denominational churches when I was younger. So my background was in sort of evangelical churches. And now I'm in um, uh, and have been in the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America for uh, since I was a teenager, pretty much being involved with ELCA churches. Um, so my background was in sort of evangelical world and my current background is in sort of the mainline world. Um, I graduated from Luther Seminary and I've got a degree in biblical studies, specifically uh, looking at the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. So that's kind of the stuff I like to geek out about. Um, 
I'm a transgender guy. So what that means for me is that I was assigned female at birth. And then when I was about 24, I got to say, gotcha, surprise. <laughs> I'm actually not, I'm a guy. Um, and so my experience of um, uh, being assigned female at birth, but being male and my experience of transition in, um, in the church and in um, in seminary <laughs> while I was in seminary. And then uh, my work uh, now has to do mostly with supporting um, other transgender and gender expansive Christians. So uh, yeah, I think that's the, most of the about me stuff. It's important to know. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. And if you wouldn't mind also sharing some definitions that would be helpful for people to keep in mind as we talk for them to think about now as they're listening and to uh, apply as they implement what they're hearing today. Yeah, I think um, so. Some definitions around gender that might be helpful for folks. Um, uh, the first thing I always say is uh, a lot of times people, especially because when we talk about like LGBTQ plus communities, right, we're talking about a large group of people. And sometimes people aren't sure about the difference between um, sexual orientation and gender. Like those things kind of get conflated sometimes. So um, I, I think it's helpful sometimes to think about the LGBTQ plus community as sort of a Venn diagram where you've got kind of two circles that overlap. And you can think of one of those circles as being about sexual orientation, which is all about like who you're attracted to. And then the other circle is being about gender, which is your experience of being male or female or both or neither. Um, all the gender stuff is kind of in the other circle. And then there's a sort of overlap in the middle, right? So there's an overlap of um, uh, identities in our community that encompass both gender and orientation. Um, so I think the uh, one of the things to keep in mind about gender is that it's not about like who you're attracted to, right? It's about your own personal experience of gender. Like people that are hearing this are probably uh, people who are men or women or non-binary folks. So there's a definition for you right away. Non-binary um, is a word that just means people that don't identify as just male or female. So um, when we're talking about gender, we often talk about male and female and non-binary folks. Um, and that's kind of uh, one of the ways that we might describe people. Um, transgender is just a word um, that means that your gender identity uh, does not match your sex assigned at birth. So everybody who's born gets sort of a sex assigned at birth. That's the moment when the doctor says, congratulations, it's a boy or it's a girl, right? That's your the sort of moment when you get assigned a sex. And that's mm. usually based on um, your external reproductive organs, right? Like a very specific part of your body. Um, however, not only is our, uh, our sort of bodily part of our assigned sex, it's more complicated than just that one part of our body. So that's one bit of the conversation we might have. But the other thing is that not everybody's gender identity, the way that they understand themselves as they grow older, matches their assigned sex. So for folks that are transgender, we have a gender identity that's different from our assigned sex. So yeah, transgender, uh, the easiest way to describe it, non-binary folks, like I talked about before, um, are kind of under the transgender umbrella. So that's part of our community as well. Um, and then maybe the other word that I'll just define quickly is cisgender, which is spelled C-I-S gender. Um, and both trans and cis are Latin prefixes. So trans just means like across from, like transatlantic. Mm. Um, so you can think about trans folks as having a gender identity that is maybe across from or different than their assigned sex. 
Whereas cisgender folks are folks that have a gender identity and an assigned sex that are on the same side. Cis just means on the same side. So those are just some words that you'll probably hear me use. No, that's really helpful. And the Venn diagram illustration is Mm -hmm. super helpful. And then, yeah, we'll be discussing your book. And so there's a whole chapter on the terminology that is just really helpful for me and to be able to refer back to. So yeah, thanks for taking the time to share those. Um, Well, as we dive in here, what would you say is the narrative you were taught about gender growing up? Mm. So I grew up um, understanding that um, in general, men were expected to do one thing and women were expected to do another thing. There were very like specific gendered um, things in our society, but also in the church community I grew up in. Um, I grew up in churches where um, women weren't leaders. You weren't allowed to be a leader if you were a woman, right? And like, there were very specific things about what it meant to be like a godly man or a godly woman, right? And so within society and within the church I grew up in, there were gendered expectations. Um, I was lucky to have, um, uh, and am lucky to have a mom who is very uh, supportive of um, me and my sister's kind of um, growing up thinking like we can be whatever we want to be right in terms of, you know, like just because you're assigned female at birth doesn't mean that you can't do stuff in the world. She kind of, I think, pushed back a little bit against those, uh, constructs in a way that was helpful for me as a little kid. So I have two younger sisters and, um, so they, uh, I think grew up with that sort of like women can do stuff kind of empowerment, which has served them well in their life for me. Um, I kind of grew up knowing that that label of like girl or woman didn't fit me. Like it just didn't make sense. But I was appreciative of the fact that my mom let me do things that maybe seemed more boyish. She let me play with, she didn't like make sure I only played with girl toys or whatever. Like she wasn't um, doing that kind of thing. So for me, I got to sort of express myself a little bit more. Um, I got to play baseball and get a bowl cut when I was 10 and (laughs) like be able to express myself a little bit more in the way that made sense for me, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, Yeah. So those were kind of the ways that I was taught about gender when I was younger. And then as a teenager, really pushed back against a lot of that as I was trying to kind of come to understand myself. Yeah. Okay. And so I think that for a lot of my listeners that will resonate with them, what the church was teaching, but mm-hmm. then to have a mom who really cultivated and nurtured and didn't stifle certain things in mm-hmm. your sisters or in you, it's just really beautiful. So, um, so you started getting here with talking about pushing back in your teenage years. So when would you say things changed for you regarding what the church was teaching you about gender and how did that change come about? So um, (laughs) as a teenager, I really started pushing back against faith and Christianity in general uh, because um, I started uh, sort of two things happened at the same time. One, I sort of started growing up and realizing like bad stuff happens in the world. Like why does God allow bad stuff to happen, right? So those sort of foundational questions about like dealing with suffering. Um, And so I felt like I wasn't getting good answers from the church I grew up in. It was like, the answer was generally, if something bad has happened, it's because you deserved it. Like you did something wrong. Right. And that was the kind of theology that I sort of, that was the only explanation I feel like I was given either that, or it was sort of like, you know, a bad thing would happen and people would say, well, you know, we don't know why God does these things. Like, you know, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that's it. You know, like there wasn't a really good explanation it felt like. And so I kind of had an issue with that. The other thing that happened is that I started seeing how, um, Christians, um, 
mostly like within the wider culture, but also within my church communities, were treating LGBT people poorly. And that didn't sit right with me either. <laughs> I kind of saw this happening and thought like, this doesn't make any sense. Like if we are proclaiming that we are supposed to love our neighbor, if we are proclaiming that God is love, like how do we go around judging these people and telling them that they're going to hell and like all these terrible things, how are we treating them this way? Um, and that, that sense of like having an issue with that grew stronger um, as I got older, because I realized um, at about 15 or 16 that I was bisexual. So like, as we're talking about that sort of Venn diagram of sexuality and gender, right? People can have more than one identity in, in these sort of uh, two circles here, right? So in the sort of orientation circle, I identify as bisexual. And in the gender circle, I identify as, identify as a transgender man. So I came out as bisexual when I was a teenager. And that really... Um, it's sort of the difference between looking at a group of people and saying how we're treating them is wrong and then realizing that you are part of that group of people and going, oh, crap. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, I think, really the thing that made me go, hmm, OK, maybe I don't want anything to do with Christianity anymore. Um, and maybe this is not something that is, uh, you know, good to be a part of. And so I really had to struggle with that as a teenager and a young adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then from, from there in your teenage years coming out as bisexual, and then you said in seminary, is that when mm -hmm. it happened, like coming out as transgender? So yeah, mm -hmm. with all of that as the backdrop, what would you say you believe and teach about gender now? Mm. So <laughs> that, the funny sort of, um, journey from being a teenager who was like, screw this, I don't want any part of this, <laughs> to being uh, a young adult, a 23-year-old that was like, I'm going to seminary. <laughs> like yeah. the, the, the journey from one to the other really came down to feeling like um, having little inklings, little sort of like, um, uh, I don't even know what the word is, sort of like, like breadcrumbs uh, dropped along the way that were like, wait a minute, okay. Um, maybe it's possible that there are churches that are affirming of LGBT people. And I found some of those and was like amazed because I didn't know they had existed before. Uh, maybe there are some Christians that are doing some really amazing things who are LGBT and finding some of them and being like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could do that. Right. So like yeah. kind of seeing these breadcrumbs of hope that eventually led me to go, you know what, what I want to do is study the Bible and I want to study um, uh, these texts that help me understand my identity and help me understand the world. And help me uh, understand other Christians. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, going to seminary and, and learning more about, um, well, everything <laughs> really yeah. helped me. Um, it got me to a place where I could see the broader welcome for LGBTQ plus people and um, people of different gender identities. I could see that in scripture. I could see it in mm -hmm. the church. And uh, it suddenly, I don't know, it, it made things possible in a completely different way. Um, and so um, in terms of like how I think about gender today, um, my, you know, I, I have my own experience, which is as a transgender guy, like I have very specific experiences of, of what that's like, but there are also... Um, you know, many people in the trans community who have different experiences from me. I don't necessarily know what it's like to be a non-binary person. I don't know what it's like to be a trans woman, right? So like my experiences are my own and all, they're all I can speak to. But um, I think my understanding of the, the sort of 
the diversity and variety of gender in the world uh, has expanded and it's expanded alongside my understanding and knowledge that that diversity is um, is a good thing. It's something that is like created by God on purpose, not mm. a sort of result of a mistake, not a result of like, you know, God messing up or people messing up or the fall or whatever. Like, I think the diversity of gender that we see in the world is something that um, is good for our communities and good for the world and something that God um, intends for us to experience. So seeing it as a, as a positive thing is something that um, I definitely had to come to through a lot of study and listening and learning. Raindress keep falling on my raindress keep falling on my head. So many of us grew up in um, places where we were taught, you know, here's what Christianity is. And we were kind of like, I, I once um, uh, was talking to my friend Lynn, who's um, sadly passed away. They were an amazing um, uh, non-binary person who worked in faith spaces and um, worked in, um, as a Native American person, worked in Native faith spaces. And uh, they once talked to me about their experience of gender. And they said, I felt like somebody gave me like a paper towel roll that I was supposed to look through. And that was as much of gender as I could see. And then one day I was allowed to like put the paper towel roll down and look and see like the entire world and like your vision expanding. And I feel like that about the way that so many of us grew up with Christianity, that we were taught like, here's this thing, you know, tiny telescope or microscope or whatever that you look through. And this is as much of Christianity that you see. And you're taught that is what Christianity is only to find out that like later on realizing like w the diversity of experiences in our traditions mm -hmm. are so huge. Like we have hundreds and hundreds of years of history that we don't know and scriptural yeah. translation that we d weren't taught. And like, there's so yeah. much more out there. So it's like, if you're, if you are currently looking at Christianity and going, this doesn't seem like right or a place that I can fit. It's okay to like put that paper towel roll down and like, look at mm -hmm. the rest of the, the variety of what we've got. Oh, thank you for sharing that insight from Lynn and mm -hmm. sharing that, that story. And yeah, I do think, right. That the more I've learned that, oh, the people who contributed to what we call the Bible didn't even have a singular notion of hell or mm -hmm. whatever. It's like, <laughs> oh, there was as much disagreement or uh, there was as much discussion or mm -hmm. diversity of thought here mm -hmm. as there is here, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because they were people. And yeah, so that's, yeah. that's such a good a Yeah, good and like to get back to what Lynn was saying with that metaphor, like I think if we can understand that sort of um, metaphor with Christianity, it might be helpful to say like, that's also what we're saying about gender, that we've been mm -hmm. taught to look through this tiny little, you know, hole of things and seeing only um, cisgender men and cisgender women, but there is an entire world out there, an entire uh, human history, history of like humankind and human beings that include people who um, are intersex and are transgender and are gender expansive. And um, sometimes we haven't gotten to see them before, but doesn't mean they weren't there. Yes. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about this and this will be a good time to ask that if you could just speak to the presence of people who exist outside of the binary we've been taught like historically and globally. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, I think that's one of the big questions that I get asked when I talk about trans folks and, um, and I sort of do gender 101 type stuff is people say like, why are there so many more trans folks today than there were before? Mm -hmm. And like the, the answer to the question is, I don't, we don't think that there are more today than there were before. It's just that it's a little bit safer for people to come out now than it used to be, um, which is not saying much because it's still deadly in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, uh, but you, it is slightly safer now and people are more likely to listen to younger folks now when they express that sense of their gender. Um, but it doesn't mean that trans people haven't existed throughout history. They definitely mm -hmm. have. Like we have um, um, great examples of gender diversity in human history. Um, in all cultures, kind of all over the world, um, there have been examples of this. And so, you know, I, I, I should, I should um, correct myself and say, we might not necessarily look back and say those people were transgender in the way we understand it today, right? Because we understand gender in our wherever you're currently located, you understand gender in a way that is different than mm. people in history. But there were definitely people who were gender expansive or gender diverse, people who may not have identified as just men, just women, right? So um, there are folks in uh, in India, in Mexico, um, in uh, many of the Polynesian islands, um, cultures where gender diversity it has been, you know, part of their culture for a really long time. Um, there have been lots of examples of um, Native and Indigenous communities having um, different gender categories in their culture prior to contact and colonization with Western cultures and specifically Christian cultures, right? Um, there were, uh, uh, we have lots of documentation of Indigenous um, groups of people in Central and South America that when they met, you know, the, the Spanish conquistadors um, who were Catholic, you know, <laughs> that was a deadly connection for them. Um, and so we have a lot of examples of that throughout history. Within Christian history, we actually have some really interesting examples of, of different saints and martyrs and people who were um, gender diverse in some way. I think probably the most famous one that people will often think of is Joan of Arc, right? Joan of Arc being somebody who um, uh, dressed in a more masculine way, specifically to um, fight for the freedom of her people. Um, and so there are people, even within Christian history, that we can look back at and go like, aha, <laughs> we have some, some folks that came before us, you know, that mm. um, we have ancestors, even within our own faith tradition. Yes. Thank you for speaking to that. Cause yeah, I've heard numerous people just talk about how people existing outside of the male, female binary, like isn't new. Right. And but yeah, when you haven't been taught these things, then it seems like, oh, this is so new, but um, you're, you're also going here. So we can go ahead and talk about this too. Like it's still dangerous. And so mm. um, one thing is that I was reading an article the other day on the human rights campaign website about how this year, 2021 marks the highest number of anti-transgender bills mm -hmm. passing 2020's total of 79. So it's like, we're only mm -hmm. in April. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, can you speak about anti-transgender legislation and how to oppose these bills? Yeah, so the the majority of bills, there's bills in, I believe the number that I've seen most recently is 33 different states <laughs> um, where there are bills um, in legislation right now that are, um, that would, uh, cause a lot of harm to transgender communities. So the the two main things that people are arguing about that the legislation is about right now, one is about whether or not 
um, trans people should be able to play sports, specifically trans youth should be able to play sports on the sports team of the gender that they are. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, you know, to be more specific about that, I think it's important for us to note that these bills that are coming up uh, very, very rarely talk about trans boys in sports. They very rarely talk about like trans boys. So trans boys would be people like me who were assigned female at birth, um, but who are, who are male and like very rarely talk about that. Doesn't seem to be as much of a concern. What most of these bills are concerned with are trans girls in sports on girls sports teams. So that would be people assigned male at birth who are female, right? And that seems to be where the concern is. And um, the reason that I want to highlight that is because I think it really um, shows us that the root of most of this issue is um, sort of is misogyny and sexism. This idea that um, men are inherently stronger and bigger and faster than women. And if you let a trans girl play on a girl's sports team, she would win all the time and it would be unfair to the cisgender girls, right? Mm. So that's kind of what these bills are arguing. The problem is not only is that not true biologically about like men always being bigger and faster and stronger mm. and winning everything, um, but also that there aren't really any examples of that happening with trans girls. There aren't really any examples of trans girls beating cisgender girls at competitions. Um, and so it seems to be sort of a non-issue that people are making a big deal about just to mm -hmm. sort of make noise. Um, so that's part of the problem um, is bills around like kids being able to play sports. Um, the other type of bill that we're seeing a lot right now is um, uh, bills that would not allow um, there to be any affirming health care, gender affirming health care for trans folks. And sometimes it's for all trans folks and sometimes it's just for trans kids. Um, but basically they're bills that would, some of them want to criminalize any doctors that would provide affirming care to trans folks. Sometimes it's criminalizing the trans people themselves for trying to get that health care. Um, sometimes it is criminalizing the parents of trans youth who are supportive to those trans youth. Um, and so there are all these things that are happening that are making it really, really difficult for trans people to access gender affirming care, healthcare specifically. Um, and the, the argument behind that, the, the healthcare thing, um, when it comes to youth, they don't really have a good argument about why trans adults shouldn't be allowed to have healthcare. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a good argument for that. You're an adult, you should be able to have affirming healthcare. But um, for trans youth, the argument is that like, you know, um, the argument you hear is we shouldn't be doing surgeries on trans kids, right? That's the argument. The problem is there aren't any surgeries happening on trans kids. <laughs> um, no state allows surgery for uh, any trans kids younger than 16. And even 16 to 18, you have to get um, both parents approval. Um, and, and so like a lot of what the argument is, is not even relevant to what's actually happening. Um, so it's, it's complicated. We see these bills that are coming up and they not only are, like will cause real harm if they are passed in terms of um, not letting people get healthcare in terms of, you know, sectioning out trans kids from their peers and saying, you can't be part of this. You can't play on sports teams. You have to be segregated. Mm -hmm. You know, if those bills pass, they will cause a lot of harm, 
But even just the fact that they are up in debate right now is causing a lot of mental distress for a lot of people, mental and emotional distress. Um, There are a lot of families that have talked to folks lately about um, families with trans kids, especially that are talking about like, well, now we have to move states. Like we can't live here anymore. If our kid can't go to the doctor and get care, or if we're going to be criminalized for supporting them. So it's a, it's a really, really big problem. And it's something that I don't think people know is happening. Um, And uh, if, if you're somebody that um, is, interested in this or would like to know more about this, um, if you go to um, transequality, I believe it's .org. Let me check to make sure it's not .com. Hang on, transequality.org, I'm correct. If you go to transequality.org, they have a state action center right on that main page and you can see more about like what's going on in your state. Um, But like I said, more than half of our states currently have this legislation up right now. And so we need people to speak up, especially um, we need Christians to speak up and Christian communities to speak up and talk about how their faith um, calls for them to uh, protect those who are oppressed and marginalized and calls us to work for the health and safety of our neighbor. Um, not just because our faith calls us to do that, but also because so many of these bills are suggested and put forward by conservative Christian think tanks and organizations. And so it's like, you know, if those if these bills are being put forward by these conservative Christian organizations, I think it's um, uh, important for affirming Christians to make just as much, if not more, noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I think that in the media we just get all sound bites, and so to have mm-hmm. more uh, explanation around those is really helpful. And then I wrote down, and we'll put in the show notes, the transequality.org and the State Action Center. Steady stuck in a cycle of being my worst critic. You get it? This is trending a different kind of encrypted. I never take up a prescription, but this is the way you feel it. You feel it? Feel like an infant. I never know what I'm getting. You never know what I'm giving. Never know how to listen. It's written by my condition. Keeping me out commissioned. And maybe I need to go get some treatment. Get out commissioned. You spit it, but you don't live it. Give it, but you don't get it. Steady treat me like I'm a stigma you need to rid of. I guess it's easy if I never spit it, cause who will listen? True description. True descriptions of what is missing. Unglue the hinges of the appendix to stay to living. I stay for this next question, I want to thank you for the feedback on how to better how to better word it. But um, how does this metaphor of war, whether it's a culture war or a political war or a theological war, harm all of us? These war metaphors are not just they're not, they're <laughs> it's like they're harmful for everybody, right? They're harmful for the people that it's being used against, but they're also harmful to the people that are using that metaphor. Um, when we think about things as a culture war, right? We've talked about the culture wars a lot in, within Christianity. Um, that comes from this idea that like we are supposed to be as Christians, we are supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, in the world, but not of the world, right? We are supposed to be um, up against the the sort of evils of our age. <laughs> and that sort of metaphor of, um, uh, of pitting people against each other, um, yeah, it, it's not just harmful for the people that it's used against. <laughs> like obviously when, in the case of, you know, these, um, the idea that there's a culture war here that, you know, the idea of manhood and womanhood is under attack, right? Like that's the kind of idea that's going on here that's underneath it. And that's not just harmful to the people who are now going to be affected by this legislation. It's also affecting the people in Christian communities that are putting that narrative forward 
because what it means is they are then not able to connect with their neighbor. They're not able to feel that sense of compassion or sympathy or empathy. Um, they're not able to listen as well because those people are considered the enemy, right? <laughs> um, they're not able to, um, to connect in that way. And it also, um, I think anytime a group of people declares another group an enemy, uh, the other thing that does to the proclaiming group is that it reminds everybody in that group that you could also someday be the enemy. Like you are one step away from being kicked out and being declared the enemy. And that is such a toxic sort of way to live and grow up <laughs> to know that like you are always one step away from that, um, that it does real damage to those communities as well. So if you're in a church that's like, you know, we, we have to fight this culture war because it's this, uh, you know, this ideological war, or this theological war, um, you in the moment for your congregation, it will feel good because in the moment for that congregant, they will think like, okay, we're on the right side of this. God is with us. We're on the right side. We know what we're doing, but eventually there are going to be some things that creep in and go, oh crap. Well, that means I better not stick a toe out of line. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is a recipe for completely inauthentic relationships because everybody is just worried about not being kicked out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think it's something that's really dangerous for all of us. Yeah, it's like the whole system is abusive um, and like the abuser and those who hold the power are your their humanity can't be unaffected when wielding that kind of power, even though like obviously those who are harmed by it, it's abusive towards them. But then to see what it does. Yeah, well, I hadn't planned to ask this until preparing last night, but I listened to an episode of the podcast Almost Heretical sometime mm. last year, um, I believe, and Dr. Christina Cleveland talked about how the average life expectancy of a Black trans woman is 33 years old. Mm -hmm. And not too long after I'd listened to that episode, I read about Nina Pop, and that mm -hmm. was the first time that I was devastated about the violence against transgender men and women. And so I was weeping. And later that day I was on Instagram and I saw this post from someone named Brooke Henderson and her handle is at Brooke of love, where she wrote, why don't you say her name? Nina is our sister, just like Ahmad and Sean are our brothers. Mm -hmm. She deserves to be remembered. She deserves justice. Sometimes I feel like I'm mourning her alone. Transgender men and women continue to be targeted. You may not hear their names in church. Your pastor may not acknowledge their murders at all. But when you decide that you don't care about Nina, who are you empowering to do the same? And so, yeah, I thought about those harmful views that I held and the violence of those views and the people that I empowered not to care about transgender men and women, as well as like my non-binary siblings. So I know all that's a lot, but like, what are your thoughts on, on that piece? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I agree. <laughs> um, we, um, so I guess I want to be careful in saying that, um, the argument should not be that we should pay less attention to the murders of any of these folks, right? Like we should not, it's not that we should pay less attention to um, the folks um, whose names we know right now who are like in the public consciousness. It's not saying that we shouldn't listen or pay attention to them and their families, right? But there are other people, other names that aren't spoken as well. And a lot of times those are people of color uh, who are also transgender, right? Um, so yeah, the, 
2020 was the deadliest year for trans folks. We had, um, uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember the exact number. I believe it was something like 37 um, transgender people murdered in the US and um, hundreds worldwide. And those murders are things that we don't talk about. And they also aren't also, uh, often um, reported correctly. Oftentimes these people are sort of misgendered after their death. And so maybe we don't hear about them for a while afterwards. Um, but these people, you know, their lives mattered too. And um, the, the danger um, specifically for um, black and indigenous trans women is so, so, so high um, that um, it's, it's something, it, you know, it's, it's at a sort of epidemic level that like we're not talking about um, how dangerous it is to be, you know, uh, um, specifically a trans feminine person of color. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I would just sort of echo everything said in that post that like, it's not just about, um, it's not just about bathroom bills, it's not just about, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, not just about this legislation around sports teams. Uh, you know, there was a lot of noise made about like trans folks in the military last year. And like, yes, that is also a concern, but like um, beyond all of that, there is just a concern for people's lives, <laughs> people's yeah. being able to live and, um, and to, um, to, to live a life that is worth living. Um, one of the sort of echoing calling cards of um, trans communities and specifically trans communities of color is give us our flowers while we're here. Don't just mourn us after we're dead, but give us our flowers while we're here. Make a life that we can live in a healthy and safe way so that it's not just about mourning us once we're gone. And I think that's really important to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to, to talk about that. I know it wasn't planned, but yeah, as I was preparing last night, I, I was just thinking about that. So yeah, thank you. Mm, yeah. Um, well, I'm holding a copy of your book in my hands, <laughs> um, which I read and rated with five stars on Goodreads. And oh, I read a review that I wanted to share here. So I said, Austin Hartkey asks thought provoking questions and leads readers on a journey to inclusivity. My life was enriched as a result of this holy work, which holds the sacred stories of transgender and non-binary siblings. Austin's hermeneutical approach added depth to once familiar biblical texts. Transforming is a must read for every Christian, and I'll be revisiting and recommending it often. So yeah, like as I was reading your book, what struck me was just wanting to ask you like the, a question that you had posed in the introduction, um, why is theology for and about transgender people important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it's such a big question. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> Let me see if I can distill. Um, so one, it's important because transgender Christians exist, transgender people exist, and like we need to be able to see people like us doing theology work. Um, uh, when I was first coming out and looking at the information that was out there, the books that were out there, um, I only, I found, um, like one or two books that were written, like there's, there's, was a lot more written, um, academically and sort of like an academic style, but I was looking specifically for things that like everybody could read, right. In a very accessible manner. And there were like one or two things and they were like out of print and hard to find and like 
as a transgender person looking for other trans people doing theology, it was really, really hard to find. And so number one, I think, why is this important? Because trans Christians exist and we need to see people like us doing this theology work because they understand us, they see us, right? They can speak to us in our language. And so I think that's important. Um, secondarily, I think it's important because there is such a cultural mindset of like trans people versus, or, or I, I might even say of LGBTQ plus people versus Christians, right? Like that's such a cultural narrative that these two groups of people are like embattled, right? <laughs> to go back to that war metaphor. And I think it's really, really important to be able to, uh, for, for our general culture to see LGBTQ plus Christians exist and we're out here living our lives and we can live joyful, happy, faith-filled lives and that that's possible. Like that kind of visibility is also really important. So I think that's like, you know, firstly for the other trans folks, secondly, because we have this cultural narrative that just isn't true and we need to counter that by, you know, being seen. Thirdly, I think it's important to have trans people doing theological work because um, it's, good for the communities that we are a part of. Um, I think so often we think of um, uh, churches that become sort of affirming or, um, uh, you know, are going, you know, specifically doing work to affirm trans folks um, that like those churches are sort of, <laughs> it's sort of, um, I don't even know what I want to say, like a pity move or like something that's like, you know, I guess we'll do this for you out of the goodness of our hearts kind of thing. And it doesn't acknowledge the fact that communities that have diversity in them, whether it's racial diversity or gender diversity or, you know, economic diversity, churches that are more diverse um, and have a variety of different people from different experiences with different experiences looking at the text that is a healthier church <laughs> because you're going to get more perspectives on the text. Right. And so like to have trans people um, in your Bible study, interpreting text with you means that they are going to see things that you don't see maybe as a cisgender person. And if say you are a cisgender person who is of a different race or ethnicity or class or ability from the trans person, you're going to see some things that they don't see. Right. So like reading these texts together, doing these studies together, um, is good for all of us. And I think the church needs to acknowledge the gifts that trans Christians bring to the communities. It's not like a, a pity one way type of thing. This is something that like churches benefit from having us there. Yes. Yeah. So like the representation of seeing yourself, but even the benefit, like first Corinthians 12, right? The gifts mm -hmm. and to see yep. we're better as a body and mm -hmm. it's rooted in this mutuality rather than a pity. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Well, man, like there are so many things that I want to ask you. And so we're going to end up having to have another conversation because I know we only have <laughs> a little bit longer, but, um, and I really want people to buy your book. So we'll hit some of these and then they need to get it so they can dig into some of these other ones. But Fair. I, I really want to ask you, how has Genesis one been wielded against those who fall outside of the male, male and female binary? And how has your thinking around Genesis one shifted? Yeah. So I, um, uh, I guess I'll say like growing up Genesis one, it's like, you know, we have two creation stories, right? Genesis one, Genesis two, and they're slightly different depending on what tradition you're from. People like to talk about how different they are, or they like to try them, make them one story, you know, <laughs> it's different, different places. But Genesis one is the one that we remember because it's where, you know, God created, God said, let's there, let there be light. And then there's light and God separates the light from the darkness. 
God says, you know, let the water gather together, let there be land, let there be water, right? So God kind of like um, does the same thing, separating into these sort of categorizations. Um, and then God says, let there be fish of the sea and birds of the air, right? Like everything that God creates in Genesis 1, God creates by organizing. So God takes um, things and puts them into boxes to try to organize the world. And that's how Genesis one shows us that the world is created. And then you get to, um, you know, the last day of creation and God says, um, you know, that human beings are sort of, God creates human beings um, in God's image mm -hmm. and then says male and female, God created them. Right. And so growing up, um, there was a lot of emphasis on this idea that maybe there's a connection between like God's creation of gender in Genesis one, God saying, you know, they will be male and female and the fact that we are made in the image of God. Like there was a lot of, I, I think it was sort of like saying, you know, to be male and to be female and to be paired together in that sort of heterosexual pairing, that is what it is like to be godlike. It is connected with godness in some way, you know? Um, so that was kind of what I was taught growing up, um, that that was sort of the way it was and that everybody was sort of separated into one of those two boxes. You're either male or female, period. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes now when Christians think about gender, they kind of think about Genesis 1 and they go, well, Genesis 1 says we're created male and female, period. That's it. <laughs> like <laughs> no outside the binary, no, uh, no trans folks, you know, having a gender that's different from their assigned sex. Um, which is funny because, you know, the Genesis one isn't necessarily talking specifically about um, bodies, <laughs> but like that, that's kind of the, the general idea. Right. And so that was kind of how I grew up thinking about Genesis one. And it wasn't until I, you know, as sort of a, a biblical scholar was getting into, you know, more of the, not just the, the translation of those passages, but also the cultural, um, context of those passages that it started sort of making more sense to me as like God's creation of human beings made sense to me because in the context of the whole rest of Genesis one, everything is being categorized into twos, right? Like everything is being made into a binary, light, dark, land, sea, birds, fish. Like <laughs> there are so many binaries showing being uh, created in Genesis one that when we get to humans, it makes sense that there's a binary there too. Like it kind of, it's a poem, it's this repetitive structure. And we recognize that it's a poem, right? We recognize like that that structure of God said, and there was, and it was good. And there was day and night, right? Like that structure happens over and over in a poetic um, structure. <laughs> um, so it suddenly I started thinking like, okay, um, but there are all these in-between places in all of these binaries that God creates, right? Between uh, day and night, there's dawn and dusk, right? Between land and sea, there are mar marshes and estuaries and beaches and coral reefs. Um, between all these things, there are things that don't fit. There are things that don't fit the boxes. And of course, I think we, you know, we see that, especially in the animal kingdom, right? There's no platypus in Genesis one. There is no penguin in Genesis one. Um, they wouldn't fit in. They don't fit in the categories, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. That doesn't mean that any of those things that don't fit the two box system are bad. And so when we get to human beings, um, it makes sense also to realize that like maybe this sort of male and female are not two boxes, but sort of like ends of a spectrum, right? Is one way to think about it um, in the same way that light and dark are sort of ends of a spectrum. Um, and 
so I think it made a lot more sense to me to think about it that way, that like maybe this is something that encompasses a lot more than what we are just seeing in the text. Because if Genesis 1 was supposed to tell us about every single thing that existed, it would be an encyclopedia, <laughs> but it's not, it's a poem. Um, so yeah, it helped me to kind of think about and expand what that might look like um, in terms of uh, a description of creation. Turn to tears, keep falling on my bed. Peace be still, keep falling. Rain dress, keep falling on my rain dress, keep falling on my head. Yeah, and I think a huge part of the whole conversation that could go off on a whole rabbit trail is like, what is the Bible? And then how you're saying it's like in what mm -hmm. we're reading here is a poem. Mm -hmm. And so what what in our modern day and Western thinking is looking on like we're, we are transposing our biases and what we already believe onto a text. And so I love the way that you handle that. Mm -hmm. And to, to think about like, Oh, there's not only these things like the light and the dark, there's not only the uh, water and the sea, there are these other things. And so the language of with the female and male binary, rather seeing it as into the spectrum. Yeah. Um, okay. Another piece that was really fascinating to me was um, when you talked about Jesus never healing a eunuch mm -hmm. and how he didn't use eunuchs as negative examples. And Jesus lifted up eunuchs instead as examples for his disciples. So like, why is it necessary to point that out? So I think, you know, first of all, um, before I even answer that question, we have to talk about why eunuchs are relevant at all. <laughs> um, yes. the, the, so like when we're looking in the Bible and uh, we're looking at like, you know, gender and how it exists and in, in the different cultures that scripture was written in, um, eunuchs are an interesting example for gender scholars today, not because it's the same as like being transgender. We're not saying like eunuchs equals transgender people. Like that's, it's not the same, but they're interesting because they're a group of people whose, um, whose bodies were different and who had a cultural, um, in, in many of the cultures uh, of the, of the um, time, uh, multiple times in scripture, they had a place in, in society, right? They, it was something that was known about. It was something, it was a group of people that had um, a cultural place. And so it's interesting for us, for, you know, people studying gender in the Bible today to look back and go, oh, these people weren't considered men. They weren't considered women. They were a whole other thing. They were a third gender. Um, and so that meant that rules around what they were allowed to do, they didn't like, <laughs> the rules tended to be very male coded or female coded. And eunuchs sometimes followed the male rules and sometimes followed the female rules, right? Because they were a whole other thing. So like, um, that's why they're interesting to gender scholars today is to go back and look at these folks. Now, when we say eunuchs, usually what we mean is people who were assigned male and who were castrated usually before puberty. So like they looked different than other people because um, they didn't go through a natal puberty like we would expect it um, for people assigned male at birth. So their bodies look different. They look different in the world. They sounded different. Um, they were usually recognizable as eunuchs, right? So um, those are the people we're usually talking about. Um, and so that's, that's kind of why they're interesting in terms of what Jesus says around eunuchs. We read about Jesus, um, referencing eunuchs in Matthew 19, and he 
he kind of says like, there are these different, he, <laughs> he does, he says this thing that the church hasn't tried, like, hasn't figured out whether he was being literal or metaphorical about <laughs> where he says, you know, there are these three kinds of eunuchs, eunuchs who have been so from birth, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others and eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so people have throughout Christian history been like, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> and um, people um, who are made eunuchs by others, that was like the most obvious thing that everybody could kind of get was it was people who were, who had been castrated, right? And, and um, most of the time that was not something somebody chose to do. It was something that was imposed upon them. Um, people who were, uh, who have been eunuchs from birth um, can actually, we think, include Jesus talking about um, people that we now know as intersex, people that are born with differences in sex development, and so have bodies that are different from the time that they're born. Um, so we think Jesus was probably recognizing those folks because people in Jesus's time did know about intersex people, that they're also not a new group of folks. <laughs> um, so yeah, that third group where Jesus says, people who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, that's the group that everybody argues about because we all want that to be us, right? Like we've argued that it's about celibate people. We've argued that it's about um, uh, gay folks. We've argued that it's about trans folks. We've had a lot of arguments about that. But the base of what Jesus is saying is he's using eunuchs as a positive example. He's saying something good about them, that there's something about them um, that is good and they are an example to follow, right? Um, and that is in opposition to the fact that Jesus could have treated them like people who were broken and needed to be fixed, right? Jesus could have met a eunuch and you know, tried to change their body, tried to heal them, could have tried to, you know, Jesus is known for not just healing bodies, but for putting back, putting people back in, um, in community with others, right? And Jesus doesn't do that with any of the eunuchs. And so the argument, uh, uh, David J. Hester is the one who made this argument, that Jesus doesn't heal or like try to fix any eunuchs shows us that like Jesus knew about eunuchs, he says something positive about them, and he doesn't fix them, which means that means that they're not broken, right? So this sort of positive experience that Jesus has with people outside the gender binary um, can be a really important one when we think about helping people and like being in relationships with people outside the gender binary today. Yes, it was all really fascinating what you shared there. And yeah, like I said, I want people to get your book. They can read and dive more into the Ethiopian eunuch mm -hmm. and his encounter with Philip and what we can apply from that to today. Um, and yeah, there was just so much that was so rich and <laughs> so good there. Um, well, yeah. Do you have any other resources that you would recommend to others interested in learning more and being better equipped to implement what we've talked about? Yeah, I think one other book I want to shout out is called uh, Trans Affirming Churches, How to Celebrate Gender Variant People and Their Loved Ones. Uh, it's by Chris Dowd and Christina Beardsley. Um, and I, I can send you the link to that as well, Nikki, so that you have it. Um, it's a uh, it's a short little book, but it's um, one that came out, I believe, last year. Um, and it's written by trans folks, and it's about things your church can do. And so I think it's a, it's a nice sort of companion to transforming to kind of say like, okay, We've talked about some of the basics and now what are we going to do about it? Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, where can people stay up to date on the work that you are doing? Um, so you can find me um, all over the place. I think my website's probably the best place is austinhartkey.com. Um, so that's where I do a lot of the sort of education um, stuff with churches. 
Uh, you can also go to transmissionministry.com, which is the organization that I direct. Um, it's an organization that um, supports trans and gender expansive Christians. So we have um, support groups where people get together and uh, talk about their experiences. We do workshops, we do Bible studies, we have all kinds of stuff for like specifically for trans and gender expansive folks. Um, but we also do have uh, a few things that are open to everybody, uh, our workshops being one of them. So we do workshops every month on, on topics that anybody can come to. So uh, check, check out TMC. We do cool things. Awesome. I will drop all that in the show notes as well. Well, what advice do you have for individuals and churches to help transgender people access the abundant life that Jesus came to bring? Mm. Well, gosh, to summarize that whole book I just recommended, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, the, hmm. The most important, I, I think, two things that I'll say right now that are specific to this time. One is um, churches need to be, um, uh, you need to seek out education on trans folks so that you know you're not saying anything offensive. <laughs> so seek out some basic education um, and, um, and don't have the people in your congregation have to do that for you. So if you have a trans person in your congregation, don't ask them to teach you um, because they're just trying to live their life. <laughs> there are plenty of um, great places where you can get uh, more education, whether it's like for your clergy, whether it's for uh, everybody in your congregation. Um, there are folks like myself that come in and do all kinds of education stuff. So get some education going so that people understand more about trans folks in their lives. Um, and then secondly, we need folk, uh, we need churches to start speaking out about things like these, um, you know, trans exclusionary pieces of legislation because um, our right now, like I said, this sort of cultural understanding is that all Christians hate trans folks and all Christians support this kind of legislation, and um, we need to be more vocal about the fact that that's not true and mm -hmm. it's meaningful. Like I know people are kind of like, gosh, I've been writing my legislators for everything, right? You know, in the past few years, <laughs> but like the, um, it is really, really meaningful for legislators to get things from churches. So if you are part of a church, like it's super uh, helpful if you all can like sign a petition together or you can send in a letter that everybody signs, right? Something that says like, we are a church community and we believe this, you know, we believe that trans folks are beloved, that are they are good the way that they are, that they belong in our communities, they belong, they deserve health care. Like that is meaningful as well. So yeah, education and being vocal about your support. Yes, I like both of those tangible actions because it doesn't like it pairs the education and the knowledge with an action so mm -hmm. that it's not just one or the other <laughs> because mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, just to see those together. Well, the last question here is what is your hope for the Christian church and transgender Christians? Um, I mean, my hope is that we can get to a point where it is not weird to be a trans Christian, <laughs> where we have trans folks in leadership, we have trans folks in our congregations, so that as our kids grow up, they grow up with that being normal, um, <laughs> that they grow up knowing that they, because like the, the way that things are now, what's happening is kids are growing up and thinking, I have to choose between my identity, who I know myself to be, 
and my faith. I have to choose one or the other. I can only have one, which means that they feel like they have to cut off some part of themselves, either cut off part of themselves before they walk into the church or completely leave the church and cut that off, right? Like um, that's the way things are right now. And so I would love to see a church where people are born into a community um, or get to join a community that sees all of who they are and celebrates all of who they are and celebrates the gifts that they bring to the community um, and that they don't have to choose one part or the other. I love that. And yeah, I join you in that hope and want to live into that to see that one step closer to whatever on earth as it is in heaven means. Cause that's a really like, it's something that used to mean one thing for me, right. And so it's very different now. Um, yeah. And yeah, to just see that come to fruition. So thank you for your time and for being so generous and to talk with me. I loved it so, so much. Oh, I'm so glad I had a great time talking to you. Thanks for letting me ramble on. A huge thank you to Austin Hartke again for coming onto the podcast. I've learned so much from him the past few years, and I'm so glad I could have this conversation with him and share it with you all. As a reminder, the music from today's episode was Raindrops by Bandy, featuring Sedante Ruland, Vocal, and Gwen T. And the full song will close out the episode. You can stream, purchase, and download Bandy's music at bandy17.bandcamp.com. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Daniel Bolin for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for a conversation with Pastor David Cady of the Well Church in Hawaii about examining the Bible we have. Grace and peace, friends. Turn to tears, keep falling on my Peace be still, keep falling. Raindrops keep falling on my. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Mind is paralytic, steady stuck in a cycle of being my worst critic. You get it? This is trending a different kind of encrypted. I never take a prescription, but this is the way you feel it. You feel it? Feel like an infant. I never know what I'm getting. You never know what I'm giving. Never know how to listen. It's written by my condition, keeping me out commissioned. And maybe I need to go get some treatment, get out commission. You spit it, but you don't live it. Give it, but you don't get it. Steady treat me like I'm a stigma you need to rid of. I guess it's easy if I never spit it, cause who will listen? True description, true descriptions of what is missing. Unglue the hinges of the appendix to stand a living. I stand a living, the true eviction is handed to me. Give me, give me, give me hope, give me something that is woke, yeah. Rain keep falling on my head. Turn to the tears, keep falling on my bed. Peace be still. Give me, give me hope, peace be still. Rain keep falling on my head. Stuck up in my head, trying to get out. Always yelling in my head, but I can't get it out my mouth. Every time I cook a plan up, I always come out with doubts. So I look into the plan, I'm gonna look around you in the drought. But look up, it's dark and raining, the pain be seeming endless. Trying to call him father, phone ring before you finish. I can't even think for myself, I don't know where to hide. And these raindrops in my head feel like when Nina died to pop out. My big ups, fast, India, spook, I'm trying to give it all to God, but I don't know how to do it. Plus, all these prescriptions, mixing my own vices, be having me in and out, double minded and decisive. So I'm praying that you back me when I'm screaming on the lightning. I'm ready for the mud, you must have made me out of Titans, and I'm no never without, cause I keep you with that. I ain't scared of no storm cause I rain with him.
every time I fall, falling for the indistress and that this life I've got isn't what it's meant to be. Sometimes I want my own place to stop living for your glory. Sitting here wondering how I got so apathetic, turning to ungodly things for an anesthetic. There are moments when I know, I know, and you take me deeper. And moments when I really, really rather wanna be here. Playground, but it's Jesus' throne. 